Philippians chapter 14, and I'll be reading verses 20 to 25, and then we'll explain what it means. Verse 20, brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Today's sermon I've entitled Mature Thinking, Mature Thinking, and we'll be looking specifically at the verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 20 to 25. As we look to this, Paul does outline for us what it means to have mature thinking, but primarily he relates it to the practice of the gifts. Paul called the believers in Corinth to be mature in their thinking and also in their practice related to the spiritual gifts. So he wanted them to be mature in their thinking, but also mature in their practice. Specifically here, as we look to what is said, Paul is emphasizing or directly concerned with the practice. They were not to take a pragmatic approach to the gifts, meaning they were not to do whatever worked. Hoping that whatever the outcome is, as long as they took a means that was suitable for their own interest, that they have achieved what God desired. That was not what God wanted for them. They were not to make the practice of the gifts overly complex to the point where they allowed evil to prevail. So they were not to make this complex because that is what Paul is correcting. If you remember all the way back to the conflict that they were beginning to introduce things that were both unrighteous, but also very complex, meaning very difficult to practice, very difficult to keep up with. And that's what happens when individuals take the decrees of the Lord, pervert them or discard them altogether and begin to practice what they think is right in their own eyes. Things become very difficult to understand. Your reasoning for doing what you do uh, becomes confused. Paul did not want them. uh, He did not want them to think this way. They were also not to be naive about the gifts. He didn't want them to be naive about the gifts, a certain naivety, meaning that they just simply allowed whatever they allowed under the assumption that this particular practice, God was okay with it because it took place among the Corinthians. Again, that would be wrong thinking. Instead, what Paul calls them to, as we look to the verses before us this morning, he calls them to think carefully. He calls them to think carefully. They were to be, as Paul says, mature. They were to be mature. This then shows us something that I think is very important for every church of this age, every church of the age before, and every church of the age that will persist until the time of Christ's return. It shows us the definition of maturity. And I think it's very important in this world in which we live in, which emphasizes life on life, experience, And these things apart from theological soundness and sound doctrine, that this world before us categorizes maturation even as life experience 
or that we simply share our life stories together. And all this then is the definition of maturation. That simply to be old is to be mature and to be young is to be immature. When we know that there are old fools, according to Proverbs, and there are young people who are wise. So then what is our definition that I want you to capture as we work our way through these few verses this morning? Well, what you'll see is that Paul, he based maturation on conformity to this. God's intentions, God's scheme and God's motive. If you find yourself in conformity to God's intentions, God's scheme and God's motive, you can be sure if you are born again that you are mature and you are maturing. It is not based on how many years you have been affiliated with religion. It's not based on how many years you have been affiliated with an institution. It is based on your understanding and conformity to God's intentions God's scheme and God's motive. Therein you can say, I am mature. Adversely, as you see in the parable that Jesus describes of the children who were were playing frivolously in the marketplace, immaturity is based on a lack of conformity to God's intentions, a lack of conformity to God's scheme, a lack of conformity to God's motive. And therefore, maturation is based on adhering to these things in the word of God And that is the foundation of maturity. Paul knew that before him there were pretenders. There were pretenders. There were people who were pretending to be mature because they established factions. There were people who were pretending to be mature because they held wealth. There were people who were pretending to be mature because yet in spite of not being able to hold wealth, they were able to manipulate those who did. There were people who established all these factions and held themselves up as being shadow faction leaders, and yet they were mature for establishing the factions. But Paul wants to take that that definition away from them, and I want to take that definition away from the modern church. Maturity is based on conformity to God's intentions, God's scheme, which we would even say his decrees is dispensations. And God's motives. You want what God wants as the outcome. That is mature Christian thinking. And it is then and only then that the Christian's thinking is mature. It is the Christian's duty to be fully grown with regard to the mind. We talked about last time that there is nowhere in Scripture that we are called to be mindless. There's nowhere in scripture where we are called to simply do things and not have a reason or rationale as to why we're doing what we do. It's not simply thinking, but in maturation, it's how thinking affects the action. This is what Paul calls them to. It's how their thinking would affect their actions. So then the actions must, too, reflect maturity. That is to be fully grown. Yet toward evil, the opposite is true. Look with me, if you will, at verse 20 of chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians. Brethren, he appeals to them as such. He assumes to this point that among those few that he is speaking to in that church, that they are believing individuals, that they are brothers and sisters in the Lord, that they are born again. But it's also up to them to test that and prove that for themselves. 
And, the, and so in addressing them that way, he gives them proving ground. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Do not be children in your thinking. Then he says, yet in evil, be infants. But in your thinking, be mature. So then the actions, as I said, must too reflect maturation. You will do what you think. You will act in concert with what your thoughts are. And so in that regard, Paul said, I want you to be fully grown. I'll tell you where he's pushing this all into the direction of. Yet toward evil, he is saying the opposite. Paul is not saying to be naive in the face of evil. He's not saying that you don't know what evil is and therefore you don't approach evil at all. He's saying there's a particular approach we must have to evil. But there's also a particular refrain. He is saying that toward evil, listen to this, we must exercise the simple caution of refrain. A fear, quote unquote, that children possess to exercise harmful uh, to exercise caution in the face of harmful activity. You recognize with children, they typically are very cautious. And even when they're not cautious, if they test something, they will be cautious the next time. And as children grow and as infants grow and become toddlers, he uses a simple picture of how God grows human beings. That their caution should increase. Because their consciences are becoming more informed. That they won't simply walk up to a hot stove and touch it. Because the last time they did that, perhaps they got burned. The last time they went up to a stove and to a burner, perhaps they felt the heat and decided that's not a good idea because I associate that with pain. Paul is wanting the Corinthians to be like infants in that area. To not say, I don't know what a stove is. I don't know what heat is. He's saying to be able to look at that and exercise discretion, to approach things carefully, to with evil refrain, to not approach it with a mentality of I can work my way through evil and achieve God's outcome. Instead, he wants them to exercise the simple caution to refrain. And Paul knows that they will test things. Because he uses that for infants, that infants and children, they do test things. But he also uses a positive example when he gets to right thinking. I'll tell you that what this is tied to specifically is not just thinking in and of itself. It's tied to Paul's explanation of the purpose of tongues, the purpose of languages, which is another way to say tongues especially related to the Old Testament. Now, first, as we look to this, he's going to explain things related to the purpose of the gift of tongues. Why? So that they can use it properly in their midst or refrain from using it if they should approach evil as a means to use it. He wants them to use it the right way. He also wants them to understand why they're using it. And so he says, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants. He ties it specifically to what is said before. If you were to glance at the verses that precede our own text this morning, and if you look beyond our text, you'll see that 
it is sandwiched between the purpose and use of languages. And so yet, he's telling them in evil, be infants. Exercise simple caution, simple refrain. What one might call common sense. And he says, yet, he doesn't say in your thinking, be children. He says in your thinking, be mature. Approach things with simple caution as children would, but in your thinking, it informs that simple refrain. Be mature. Think things through. Analyze. Scrutinize. Discern. He's telling them that he wants them to think clearly. To think as those who are being fully formed in the image of Christ when they take a particular action, particularly with reference to the practice of the gifts. First, Paul explained that there was an Old Testament understanding that drove the modern or contemporary understanding of the gifts. Paul wanted them to first be mature in their thinking about how the gifts of tongues were laid out and defined in the Old Testament prophetic canon. He says, I want you to think clearly about where this started so that as you practice it in the life of the church, you understand where it began and where it ends. You have to be mature in your thinking. Paul didn't say that you can weigh these things, debate them. Somehow posit a few views that are out there and we all can just work those out over time. We don't have time to play with these things. We have to be clear. And Paul brings that clarity forward by saying, I'm going to appeal to the prophets. You have to know what the prophets thought, what the prophets taught and what they proclaimed to Israel. It is why each Sunday morning we begin in the most times that we can with reading the Old Testament. You have to know what the prophets taught because Paul appeals backward to them. Oh, but we're New Covenant Christians. Yes, we're New Covenant Christians and we certainly have persevered. But a lot of what we're learning is founded upon the prophets. It's founded upon the prophets. Jesus and Paul appeal to them. And so Paul says... I'm going to appeal to the law to help you to continue to mature about your thinking. He says in the law, it is written, appeals to the law. In the law, it is written by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers. I will speak to this people, this people. He's referring to uh, the Israelites. However, he's referring to those Israelites who have been separated from the land and the land promised due to their disobedience and rebellion. Some of that you saw as we looked at Numbers 13. That's kind of the beginning of it. Where they begin to complain against Moses. And then the Lord has to kill off a whole first generation we know. And therefore in that account we're looking at in Numbers. He's speaking to that second generation. And they'll go through that cycle of disobedience and rebellion. They'll argue against prophets sent against them. They'll try to stone and kill prophets, and at some ways they'll succeed. They'll rebel against the word of the Lord. And so the prophet Isaiah, as we'll turn and look at it very briefly, he appeals to them in this way. And Paul appeals to him to help the Corinthians think about their place within the prophetic canon. By men of strange tongues or strange languages and by the lips of strangers... 
I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. I'm going to pause here for a second. Anytime the people that God has meant to send out before the world at large doesn't listen to him, and now they have to hear the testimony of those who they were supposed to be reaching, that's judgment. It's judgment. The Gentiles were supposed to be reached by God's people Israel. And what the word of the Lord is saying through the prophet Isaiah is that that didn't happen. And you're solely, O Israel, responsible for that. And because you're responsible for that, I'm going to judge you. And here's what that judgment will look like. I'm going to launch testimony among you from people of strange lands and strange languages, strange to your ears, but language nonetheless. Coherent and understandable to those who are speaking, but not to you. And they will testify against you. And in that testimony, you can be sure it's a call to repent because they're expected to listen. And the word of the Lord comes to Isaiah and we'll turn to Isaiah 28 and look there. But it comes to Isaiah and he prophesies they will not even so they won't listen to me. The Lord says that. So the Lord is speaking through Isaiah and will speak through these foreign nations calling Israel to repent and Israel will not listen. Look with me, if you will, at Isaiah chapter 28. I'll give you a little bit of time to turn there. It's right before Jeremiah. But Isaiah chapter 28, 11 to 13. And I want to give you just a context of what Paul is referring to, because I think it's very important to understand the foundation of languages, the purpose of languages, the meaning of languages even as they made their way forward into the life of the New Testament church at that time. It is why Paul says that these are a sign for unbelievers. Verse 11 of Isaiah chapter 28. Indeed, he will speak to this people. Or let me, let me back up a little bit. Let's look at 9. Verse 9. Isaiah chapter 28 verse 9. To whom would he teach knowledge? To whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast, the language of infancy. You see this? For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Indeed, he will look at this, speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. Who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary and here is repose. But they would not listen. He's going to promise through the lips of those who are stammering, not that they're stammering physically, but they sound stammered to the hearer, and through foreign languages, Gentiles will testify against Israel and offer rest to the Israelites. Rest from what? From the consequence of their disobedience, from their separation from the land that caused them to be exiled from the land into foreign lands. And then look at what he says at the end of verse 12. But they will they would not listen. So, you know, what the Lord does, he counters. And I'm going to explain what you see in the symmetry of verse 10 and verse 13. And so the word of the Lord to them will be what? Order on order, order on order, line on line, 
line on line, a little here, a little there. That they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. This is the language of judgment. Let me explain to you what's happening. Here the words are said by the prophet Isaiah, who promised a day would come where the Lord would speak to his people in foreign languages. They would not understand them as judgments before them. Since they would not accept the plain revealed prophecies of God in their own first language, God would confound them. He would confuse them. What is here in Isaiah 28 is how they responded in Acts 2. Do you remember that? The day of Pentecost? What did they say about the people? They're drunk. These people are all drunk. No, they're not. They're calling you to repent in multiple languages so that you would fall on your face before God and be saved. And then if you look closely, when the word of the Lord was spoken to them, they mocked him. That's what's happening in verse uh, 10. They're mocking him. The word is coming clearly. And their response to it is that they don't want to understand what is clearly being said. And so the Lord is going to twist it and confound them in the same way that they heard it before. Verse 13 of Isaiah 28. Isaiah related to them that their scoffing would be in such a way that they would dismiss God's word as rudimentary, as basic, themselves beyond the need of such revelation to them. It is why, and the Israel's, uh, I'm sorry, the the Hebrew uh, plays this out a lot better, but... You see where it says order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. They're basically taking what the Lord is giving them and saying the precept that the Lord has launched forward in his law for you to obey. Every ounce of it is important. And what they're saying is, uh, it's not that important. We keep hearing the same thing. We keep hearing you tell us about this law, that law, a little here, a little there. We don't have to obey it as it comes to us. Stop trying to teach us the basic fundamental truths of God's word. We are beyond it. I mean, I'm highlighting for you Jesus's actual ministry on the earth before the Pharisees, before the Israelites at large, before the Sadducees, before the scribes. Many of them said, we don't have any need of this. They thought themselves free men. And so their mockery in verse 13, they understood the words. They didn't understand the practice. To do so is to mock him, to mock God himself. They thought themselves free men. It's why they hear the way they hear. It's why I remember as we spoke uh, a few sermons ago about being careful how you hear. To them, the stumbling block, as you look at verse 13 all the way down to its very end, the stumbling block was there as a judgment. They believed themselves to have no need of God's revelation to them through his prophets. Therefore, the word became a stumbling block to them. That's what Isaiah is saying at the very end of this. But also they would incur the Lord's judgment in the form of obscuring the languages of the word to them. Paul wanted the Corinthians to know and to understand 
that the purpose of tongues were directly related to the area of judgment. Isaiah said that the time is coming when people will come and testify to you, Gentiles, and they're going to set before you the law. This is what's happening in verses 10 of Isaiah 28 to 13. The word of the Lord is going to set the law before you. And you're going to fight against the repentance that's necessary by trying to reinterpret the law, by ignoring the law, by throwing the law in its misinterpretation back to those who are coming to you. Sounds a lot like the modern church today. And so the Lord would judge their scoffing because that's scoffing. He would judge them for rejecting the prophets because he was speaking through the prophets. Therefore, it was to reject him. But the issue was one of deception. They really believed themselves to be free. Paul wanted them to understand the purpose of tongues. He wanted them to understand that tongues were related to judgment so that they would use the gift correctly. And not communicate that the Lord's actual people were under judgment. It's why he wanted the gift of languages to be understood and practiced in their proper context. Because if you use it improperly, you're pronouncing judgment. Therefore, the content of languages is directly related in many cases to repentance. The gift was given to call unbelievers to repentance. It is indeed why the Holy Spirit gave the gift of interpretation. He wanted it to be understood. But he also gave the orderly practice of the gifts, as we will see in the verse, uh, in the verses that follow. Look at verse 22. So then tongues are for a sign. It's everything I just said, but Paul says it. It is the divine word of the Lord then here. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. You see, with this gift, Paul is communicating what the Holy Spirit wants. It's why he calls them to be mature, because we have to want what the Holy Spirit wants. Therein, the Christian is mature. We can't want what we desire if it is apart from what God wills. So he wants the people to understand both purpose and order. Purpose and order. Here's why. Here's how. Here's why. Here's how. Here's why you ought to know what you know. Here's how you ought to practice what you know. Purpose you see here in verses 21 and 22. You see the purpose before you. The order you see in what follows. Verse 23 and beyond. He connects it by saying in verse 23, therefore, if the whole church assembles. So now he's bringing it all together and he's bringing this scenario into a place where it's practiced in the church. The gift of languages and the gift of prophecy. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues. He's not about to say something positive. And all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter Will they not say that you are mad? Look at this. Paul showed the Corinthians the assembly as the place where languages were supposed to be spoken and spoken in an orderly manner. Not all speaking at the same time. 
Because, quite frankly, if we all did that in our first language, we would not understand what we all were saying. He certainly doesn't want them to do that with the gift. Because it misinterprets the God who gave the gift. It misinterprets the gift's purpose, the order behind the gift. And God is certainly a God of order, not chaos. There was to be structure. There was to be structure. This whole idea of allowing room for the Holy Spirit has no foundation in Scripture. We don't allow room for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes room for himself, and then he gives us order. He gives us structure. Not saying gives us formalism, but he gives us structure, order. It runs contrary to the notion that we can have frenzy and emotional chaos, yet somehow bring the people to the proper use of the gifts. When we see here that the gifts command decency and order, they command decency, reverence, sobriety, order. Paul envisioned a scenario that I believe was a real one. I don't believe it's hypothetical. I believe he's speaking of a very real situation where he wants what God wants to happen in that context. He envisioned a scenario where the church is assembled. Verse 23. And then all were speaking in languages. And I believe here he is explaining the actual use of the gift. I don't think he's speaking of frenzy or chaos related to the gifts. I think he's speaking of frenzy and chaos if there's no interpreter and everyone is speaking at the same time. I believe he's dealing with this, that known languages were spoken, yet it would be in proper use in the sense that the languages were not spoken as accompanied by one who possesses the gift of interpretation. Look with me, if you will, at verse 13 in the same chapter. Therefore, let one who speaks... In a tongue, pray that he may interpret. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. And then he's going to tell you what to do if you don't have an interpreter in verse uh, 28. Look at what he says. We'll get there next week, but look at what he says. But if there is no interpreter, what happens? We just make it up. We just all speak at the same time. No, look at what he says. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church. And let him speak to himself in God. I don't want to know that you have the gift of languages. Not that I believe that they are operative today in the life of the church. But if you're claiming you do and there's no interpreter, you shouldn't be practicing it anyway. There should be interpretation. And the interpretation should be based on the features of Language speaking, which dealt with repentance, which dealt with one's unbelief. Certainly not what you see in charismatic circles and other places that desire the gift that is not actually the gift that God has given. But you understand something with this. Notice the desired goal and outcome for this particular gift. It is orderliness Yes, that's what the spirit wants. But the outcome is worship, conviction and repentance. Where am I getting that from? Look at the practice of it. But if all prophesy. 
and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. Look at this. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. You almost see these three verses as a companion to how he ends our previous context. Look at verse 18 and 19 of 1 Corinthians 14. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. Then look at what he says. However, however, in the church, we're back in the church. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than uh, uh, than 10,000 words in a tongue, in a language. I want the people to know what I'm saying so that the result would be worship, conviction and repentance. Not just everyone saying, wow, look at him. He possesses a gift. They were already doing that. Paul says, I want you to put a stop to that practice. I believe that the modern church at large, many of them, are founded on the very things that the apostles attacked. That their charter, that their marching orders are all based on things that Paul himself even wanted to correct. And it's why there's frenzy, emotional frenzy, emotional instability. It's why they don't even use the Bible for, uh, for, for basing the claims on, on their own practices. It's because they have founded their fellowships based on what the apostles aim to correct and what they attacked. He said when the church comes together, the goal should be worship, conviction, repentance. In the real sense, you don't have to whip that up. You don't have to invite the Holy Spirit in. He's God. He's everywhere. You simply have to do what God has required, and he will indeed uh, authorize and authenticate what he has established. You don't have to invite him into things. But if you notice here in verse 23, very, very much Paul is concerned with the perception. Listen to this. And we're going to step back from this. He is very much as we back up into verse 23, the perception of unbelievers toward believers. When this is at stake, when God's name, decrees and perfections are at stake, what we do is certainly under review from the body of Christ. But it can also come under the scrutiny of unbelievers. That's an important thing to realize. Unbelievers don't have a say in it, but unbelievers certainly are looking at what we do and they can be uh, they can be either brought to repentance or stumbling block can be placed before them. Paul envisions where they walk into the assembly. Where they walk into the assembly. He's not saying that we should establish church for the unchurched. Quote unquote. He's also not saying that the church itself is only attended by those who believe. It is only meant to be attended by those who believe. But you may find unbelievers in your midst. Unbelievers may walk through the doors of the so-called meeting place of fellowship. And here they are. We don't tell them to leave because you're unbelievers. Yet, we want the outcome for them to be the same. Worship, conviction, and repentance. 
Well, what do we have today to cause that to happen? We have the gift of teaching. We have the gift of teaching. But Paul did concern himself and the Corinthians with the perception of unbelievers toward believers, not through their false sense of what we ought to be doing or what we ought to be, but of our sense of what we ought to be and who we ought to be before the Lord. He did not want believers to misrepresent God before unbelievers, because then you alter their perception already of what their perception is, and they begin to themselves falsely charge God with things that aren't true about them. You see it all the time. You'll see a group who are calling themselves Christians, and they're really not, and you'll see people become disheartened at that group and saying, oh, that's what the Christians do. They're Christians. That's why I'm not a Christian. That's why I don't go to church. Well, no, you don't go to church because you hate God, but you have stumbled because you think that God looks like what people are claiming he looks like, and he doesn't. Paul said, let's represent him the right way. And even if unbelievers come in, don't get scared that unbelievers show up. Do what the Lord has established to bring them to worship, conviction, and repentance. In this age, it was prophecy and languages. That's what was at stake, and that's what the Lord had provided along with the teaching gift. When you consider this, that the church itself was at stake, you'll understand that Paul's message was very urgent. And that hasn't changed, that the church is always at stake until Christ returns. The church will prove triumphant, but it is always... At stake. When you consider the negative, to improperly use tongues or languages, or to use languages with the wrong motive, you know the, the result. It is to strike against God's clear revelation. It is to strike against God's clear revelation. It is to strike against his purposes. It is to strike against his decrees. It is to cause a further stumbling block to unbelievers. It's why we can't just be open but cautious, quote unquote. It's why we can't redefine the gift and hope for that definition of the gift and somehow just wait in flux. And the gift is never manifested the right way. It's why we must define the gift by God's standard. And then we determine if the gift itself is operative in the way that God has said I'll tell you this. You don't go your life, as Paul is explaining to them, trying to help unbelievers think that you're not crazy. The good news is they already think we're crazy. Paul is saying don't give them reason by misinterpreting God to substantiate that claim. Don't do things chaotically to make them go, you're just like us. Society, the world system, it's crazy. The people in it and the people who run it. And the people who consume from it without a worldview, a biblical worldview that shows them that God is the king of kings, the ancient of days, that informs the end times and the world before us, even in the time in which we find ourselves. To not do it that way is crazy. But you don't want them to think you're mad because you've taken something that was supposed to be biblical, you've altered it, and it is chaotic. You don't want to give them reason. 
essentially what Paul is saying, why give them a reason? When they enter, they'll say that you're mad. And guess what? They'll be right. If you're doing this particular thing, and this is, he's referring to the gift of languages, and you're speaking in these languages that no one's interpreting all at the same time, and everyone's looking around, and no one is explaining what is happening or what that means. And a clear explanation would simply drive home the point that you need to repent. And if that's happening, then the people are going to say that you're mad. And what Paul is saying is it would be true. Well, why would it be that you're mad? Because you refuse to do things in a sane and orderly way. Simply have someone interpret. Have someone interpret. Don't lie about the interpretation and don't lie about the gift. Paul says, don't give them a reason. If an unbeliever or ungifted man, and that's a way of saying ignorant, one who's ignorant, and it also shows you that not all possesses the gift of languages. As soon as they walk in the assembly, they all don't have the gift. But he says, if an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters and tongues or languages are spoken in unison without interpretation, then they will believe the speaker to be crazy because they can't understand. And the means are there for them to understand. He's not saying when you preach the word of God clearly and people think you're crazy. That sole issue lies with them. But if you're using or misusing a gift this way and there's no interpreter as there ought to be, then you share the burden with the unbelievers. You seem crazy, you are crazy, they're right for you being crazy, and you both are crazy together. And by that I mean insane. Because you refuse to do it God's way. You share that with them. They're not doing it God's way, but neither are you. Why? Because it goes to the purpose of the gifts. That's why Paul laid this out. It was to be clearly understood by the unbelievers. It's not a private prayer language. It's not fluttering your mouth and your eyeballs and somehow trying to bring you to an emotional frenzy and be closer with God. But it was to be clearly understood by unbelievers. Why? So that their judgment against them would be clear. Be like if you imagine a courtroom and you're being sentenced. The terms of the sentencing should be clear. You don't just read the charges, bang the gavel and everybody leaves. It's clear. Here's the time that you will serve. Here's the consequence for your actions. The Lord was not attempting to obscure the terms of judgment against them. What would that do to help them understand the severity of the charges against them if he were to obscure it? He wasn't trying to hide the judgment. He was trying to prove to the unbeliever, especially to unbelieving Israel, that I'm going to speak to you in a different language because you won't hear me in your own. Prophecy, however, was a sign for believers, not unbelievers. Whereas tongues were a sign for unbelievers and not believers. Do you see how the modern charismatics, fringe or otherwise, have, have these two mixed up? They've mixed these two up. They claim to prophesy to the unbelievers, and yet they also claim to practice the gift of tongue, tongue speaking for the believers. They've mixed it up. 
The same is true with prophecy in verse 24. You see the examination or the scrutiny of the gift to make sure it is practiced properly. But if all prophesy, look at this, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, what happens? Order ensues. He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. It goes to what Paul said, as I mentioned in verse 19. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. You see the actual fact that the gift of prophecy brings immediate conviction without interpretation, immediate conviction, because it is plain speaking involved and God's will to respond appropriately to the plain speaking. You see, then, what is the result of the gift of God's people practicing it the right way, especially the gift of prophecy? You see that they fall on their face and they worship God. And that's what God desires. But you also see that in this gift of prophecy that Paul still desires that it is done in an orderly way. You will see that in verses 29 to 31. You'll see that this still must be done in order. That even though all speaking prophetically will convict all who enter, Paul still wants there to be order involved in the use of the gift. He highlights that in the verses that we'll explore together next week. Let's pray.